Hello everyone, and welcome to Grimshaw Speakers, where we talk careers in IR with practitioners. Today I'm joined by AJ Minuzzi, who's currently a program assistant and Southern Regional Director at the John Quincy Adams Society. He was a legislative intern at the US House of Representatives, and he did his BSCs and Masters at American University, where he specialized in US foreign policy and national security. Hi AJ, thank you awesome. for joining us. Hi, I'm glad to come on. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking about my career trajectory, John Quincy Adams Society, and a more restrained and just US foreign policy. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, so yeah, how about this? Let's start with, uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about the John Quincy Adams Society and kind of your role in it and yeah, what you do. Absolutely. Uh, I am a program assistant and the Southern Regional Director for JQAS. Uh, we are, as you may have guessed, named for the sixth president of the United States, uh, former secretary of state, former diplomat. He was very involved uh, in U.S. foreign policy and the crafting of the foreign policy of the early republic. Adams's view of U.S. foreign policy was rooted in a tradition that um, originated at the start of the American Republic when it was trying to uh, consolidate and, and you know, keep itself, secure its independence. Um, and it is this tradition of restraint that is uh, wary of entangling alliances that uh, views the United States in Adams's words uh, as, as the champion of freedom in the world, but uh, but the vindicator only of her own. His sense of restraint guided his tenure as Secretary of State, his tenure as vice, as president, and its uh, foreign policy legacy that. Uh, we certainly think people could learn from today uh, in, in the aftermath of uh, two-decade war in Afghanistan, uh, record defense budgets, um, and a number of conflicts the United States is embroiled in throughout the world um, as, as a result of its conception as uh, its pursuit of military primacy and dominance. Uh, we think that the United States does not need to be pursuing this sort of strategy uh, to secure itself and its interest, and instead, rather, a, a, fo a focus that takes a more narrow view of American national security interests that uh, engages with the world, but in a matter that uh, promotes peace and prosperity for the American people and for the world um, through trade, cultural exchange, diplomacy, rather than the primary tool, and oftentimes the tool of first resort being uh, the military instrument. What I do at JQAS is I'm involved with a lot of our educational programming, our work with students and young professionals. Uh, as my Southern Regional Director hat, I oversee our Southern campus chapters at universities throughout the Southern part of the United States. Uh, our campus chapters serve as important forums on uh, foreign policy and the foreign policy of restraint. Uh, they organize things like speaker events, reading groups, all kinds of great educational and career-enhancing uh, programming. You know, to anybody who's listening out there in the southern half of the United States, you can obviously reach out to me, and I'm happy to help facilitate that process. Uh, and my other hat as a program assistant, I work on a couple of main objectives. Number one line of effort is the Marcellus Policy Fellowship. Uh, the Marcellus Policy Fellowship, of which I am an alum, as well as the program manager, um, is an initiative that's geared towards building young people and young professionals for careers in foreign policy restraint. And it's all about building up your policy writing capabilities, 
uh, your ability to engage and, and understand the big picture grand strategy topics that face the United States and the world today. And uh, ultimately, you in the end will get to study a foreign policy topic of your choice uh, and how it relates to U.S. national interests. You will publish a think tank style white paper on the JQAS website that you'll study this issue all throughout the, the essentially semester and produce that paper at the end. You will write an op-ed that you may be able to submit to uh, a major outlet. And you also will produce a one-page policy memo that uh, you, know, you might leave behind if you were meeting with a policymaker. So I oversee selection and the program uh, administration of that program. Uh, I highly recommend it as a former participant myself. That is one of my main lines of effort. I also work on uh, other initiatives like our summer conferences, our reading groups, uh, of course, uh, which I'm happy to plug uh, at any other point within this interview, but um, there you can see them all on our website. Awesome. Thank you so much. That sounds uh, very interesting. I think JQAS then kind of uh, works a little bit at the, it's a network on the one hand, but it's also not really a think tank, but you do publish a lot of policy briefs um, and policy papers, especially. Um, yeah, so JQAS is absolutely uh, for, first and foremost a student and young professional network, as you just identified. It's all about building those connections, building those relationships, and educating people um, about U.S. foreign policy. We do seek to educate the public about these major issues, and especially the future young policymakers of America. You know, kind of we take the approach that I don't know if you're familiar with the Federalist Society in the United States. It's a a uh, legal organization that tries to produce kind of a, a bench of conservative judges. And then, you know, if there's a conservative president who comes into power, they might submit a list of those judges that they want. And a lot of them are federal society. Um, we kind of take that similar approach, uh, regardless of, you know, people's individual takes on the federal society itself. Uh, we want to cultivate that next kind of bench of uh, future foreign policy leaders in restraint. Um, and that's, it's a long-term mission, but it's one that, you know, we're certainly optimistic about, uh, given how young people tend to now think about the big issues about U.S. foreign policy and their divergence from the traditional foreign policy establishment. Gotcha. Thanks. That's, that's, that sounds very, very interesting. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, you completed your bachelor's and also your master's at American University, Washington, D.C., and now as you said, you work at uh, JQAS. Um, how did you transition from academia to working in the field of foreign policy? Um, and did you find any challenges or surprises along the way? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, to answer your first question, the transition, uh, I was lucky at AU to have a supportive network of professors, of colleagues uh, who are very interested in this stuff. Um, even if they didn't necessarily take the same line that we here at JQAS do. Um, but, you know, I think AU status as a policy school, um, especially at the graduate level, that allows you opportunities like I had to take a capstone course um, where we were actually helping the State Department uh, work on U.S. foreign policy towards Central Asia. Um, and this was just in the kind of immediate aftermath of the war in Ukraine. So it was very much more, I think, at the forefront. Um, it was a really rewarding experience, and it's the type of experience that, you know, not just being in the nation's capital, but also being at a policy school, I think, benefited me a lot. Um, I think, you know, in terms of that transition, I would say that I could have done it really without JQAS. Um, I think 
being a Marsalis Policy Fellow in that interim really helped me build the skills and connections that I needed um, to be somebody who uh, is capable of engaging in the, the foreign policy discourse um, and knows the institutions of U.S. foreign policy, which levers, uh, you know, direct and implement U.S. foreign policy and allowed me the chance to really specialize and, and get to know an area um, I thought, thought U.S. foreign policy was, was lacking in its um, coherence. Um, I think really, you know, being around uh, supportive people and, you know, getting the chance to uh, work on a team um, of people aimed at, you know, the general same principle of promoting U.S. security really enabled me to, um, to think about the best way that, um, you know, I can build those skills. Um, I think reading a lot uh, was an essential element of it. I think the JQAS newsletter and being in networks like that, um, getting to know people was uh, invaluable to my career. Uh, I will say to your second question, uh, one of the pleasant surprises I had was how willing people are in this space to engage with younger people. Uh, when I talk to people like that I interned with uh, under on Capitol Hill or, you know, came to speak at one of my classes at AU or uh, who were in the JQAS network or the JQAS staff, uh, I was always blown away by their interest in helping me, getting to know me uh, and supporting me. Um, this is a very competitive career space, but I think that people really do want to help you and, uh, you know, support you. And I think uh, I was surprised by the extent to which that was true. As far as challenges, I think, you know, there's kind of a, a lack of infrastructure, especially for folks who think differently about foreign policy um, than a lot of the folks in Washington do. There's kind of like two or three pipelines where you do the same kind of thing, you know, working with the same kind of people and you think the same way. And, you know, if you don't think the same way, then it kind of can be harder. But with the inroads that organizations like JQAS have made, um, you know, we have realigned the incentives to use kind of a business term. You know, there are incentives and pathways for people who have heterodox thinking about U.S. foreign policy, who think seriously about these issues and just come to a different conclusion about what best provides security. I think another thing that uh, was a challenge was this idea of imposter syndrome. It was very real, you know, showing up and, and being surrounded by incredible people with uh, impressive resumes and things like that. It's you can certainly think, man, how did I get here? Like, you know, I'm I in no way know as much about any part of the world as these people do about uh, their area of interests. Um, and, you know, I think what complemented that in my uh, experience was the fact that I didn't always know that I wanted to do this. You will talk to people uh, who, you know, want to go in and form policy, and they've kind of known since they were five years old, they wanted to be a diplomat, they wanted to go into the military. Uh, well, that wasn't necessarily true for me. Um, and I think, you know, getting to really dive in, I think I had to work almost in some ways uh, harder than um, I would have had I known right away this is what I wanted to do, but it was, it was rewarding, um, but it was a lot. And, you know, I think when combined with the imposter syndrome, that um, 
kind of was was something that made me more reluctant to engage uh, with other folks in this um, broader universe than I, it probably should have been. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, a lot of things that resonate a lot, I'm sure, with myself and I'm sure with, you know, a lot of people in our stage of uh, of our lives and our kind of very early careers and coming out of university, especially. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things that I really want to go back to. The first one being specialization. You mentioned that you had definitely some difficulty choosing exactly what you wanted to focus on. Uh, and, you know, many of our of us and our listeners will have to face decisions about specializing within their field, uh, especially in IR. How did you end up determining your specific focus and kind of what was the road there and what made you decide and how did that impact your also your current line of work? Absolutely. Um, as far as how I determine specialization, uh, I spend a lot of time reading about studying uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, I, you know, I read a lot. Um, I think, you know, having Spanish language skills was beneficial because I could read, you know, a newspaper from Chile and be like, okay, I know what this is talking about. And, you know, you'll get deeper than you might if you just read something from like Reuters. Um, I really kind of got specialized in Latin America about when I started to get um, specializing in U.S. foreign policy general. Um, I, you know, I knew people who had connections to that part of the world, whether it was where they were from or, or something like that. I had spent time in the region, um, you know, studying, living uh, for a short period of time and really got to immerse myself in the, the cultures of this place and their history and their relationship with the United States. I a particular era of history that I'm interested in is just like kind of the, the late-ish Cold War and, you know, hearing about um, the United States' support for repressive forces in El Salvador and things like that. Um, you know, my one of my first Spanish teachers was um, actually uh, married to, or, or rather led a, um, like a screening of uh, a film about the, the dirty war in Argentina and the um, military junta that we supported, um, and and her husband was from Chile, where we did you know essentially very similar things. Um, and so getting exposed to those stories kind of cracked the idea that I had about U.S. foreign policy as um, you know an, an exceptional force that brings peace and stability to the world. With with the more that it engages um, militarily, um, but you know once I you know, uh, became interested in that. I also became interested in other aspects of this, like arms sales and sanctions. And, you know, I began to think about what are the ways where I can actually change U.S. foreign policy? And those were very prevalent in the region, uh, an easy way to do no harm. Um, I still write a lot about this part of the world. I was actually writing, uh, working on an op-ed about the situation in Guyana, where Venezuela passed a referendum that pledged to essentially annex this area of es called Essequibo that's two-thirds the size of Guyana. Um, and uh, I've, I've written about Venezuela, I've written about uh, Cuba, um, and I've written about Haiti lately. Um, and, you know, I think having those language skills, I think studying the history of the region and, um, and the history of the United States' engagement within that region um, is something that has 
allowed me to gain a greater uh, appreciation for um, history and for um, you know, think about alternatives to U.S. foreign policy that actually advance peace and security in the hemisphere um, and, you know, correct some of the narratives that we have about U.S. foreign policy. I'm currently reading Greg Grandin's uh, Empire's Workshop, which I highly recommend to anybody interested in this stuff. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I mean, I'm personally very interested, like I mentioned to you earlier, before we started recording, I study Chinese as part of my degree. And I know that a lot of our listeners, for sure, at the LSE are either international, so they already speak multiple languages due to the fact of being born in a country where English isn't the first language, or just are interested in and do learn languages. I'm curious about if you could go a little bit more into how speaking Spanish, in this case, helped you um, with your career. Absolutely. Um, I think being, you know, get, gaining that language capability, I was able to uh, have kind of in-country experience and, and really get to actually speak with people uh, in the country who uh, had experienced U.S. foreign policy. I was able to uh, read works that were written in um, that language, you know, from people in the region, which helped me gain a greater understanding of the history, but also uh, the way that people um, you know, think of uh, of the United States in those countries. Um, I'm able to follow the news more regularly. You know, sometimes uh, these countries will pop into the news um, and, and English language works, but um, I can kind of follow it more regularly and more in depth um, on a daily basis because I have that background. And, you know, I, I can, rather than, just kind of wait around for an occasional Reuters article on what's going on in Cuba. You know, I can read something that's coming from uh, a, you know, a speech given by the president of Cuba or um, something that somebody in the Cuban American diaspora is writing about in Spanish. Also having those language skills is something that uh, can be beneficial in terms of employment. Um, and you know, I got certain interviews and certain uh, experiences just because I uh, actually did speak Spanish, um, and I could, I could understand, uh, you know, these documents that uh, were reports published in another language about, say, uh, Chinese engagement in Latin America, um, and you know, I could also do things like translate those uh, for social media and post them. Um, and so it just gave me, it opened new doors for me and gave me the opportunity to engage with another audience as well, which ultimately just uh, broadened my career horizons personally. So I encourage people, you know, while they're still of our general, you know, age cohort, and their brains are very much capable of this to learn more languages, to um, do that so that you can do those amazing things and that uh, they'll help you stand out and, and be an enriching experience for you, generally speaking. Yeah, I think, thanks. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great point. And I think there's a lot of a worry, especially in our generation around AI regarding languages, for sure. Obviously, that makes everything a lot easier in terms of being able to access content that is not in a language that, or is in a language that you don't speak. But I do think that in especially when it comes to very sensitive or very detailed things, we still do need absolutely, at least for the time being, we we definitely need people 
that we can trust to to do that work because there's a lot of uh, inaccuracy that goes on with AI and and automated translations and so and and the fact that you mentioned I think being able to stay stay on top of the news for example is not really something you can do with AI it's a lot more tedious it's a lot more complicated so uh, there's definitely some a lot of room there for people to who have language skills to be able to utilize those and kind of use them in their career. Exactly. Like our executive director is a, an, an Iran watcher. Um, he knows a lot about Iran, but he also speaks Farsi. So he's really able to, you know, listen to podcasts about the news that, you know, are in Farsi and, and to follow that news with more regularity and more depth than he otherwise would be able to. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. I think that's that's great. The other thing you mentioned earlier is how obviously now the field of foreign policy, IR in general, but definitely the field of foreign policy is extremely competitive. And you mentioned imposter syndrome and how tough that can be. That's, I think, something that everybody who's listening can for sure relate to. Um, so what advice would you give to students or any early career professionals who aspire to establish themselves in this field? The first piece of evidence I would give, I just kind of gave a second ago, which was about the language skills. Uh, if you can have those, that will certainly work in your favor. You know, you'll get to work on things that are more specialized, um, that give you uh, more autonomy, and and uh, you'll be able to build up a kind of brand for yourself as somebody who follows these things closely um, and you know is able to uh, actually speak to people um, on the ground. Uh, so I think that's one. I think uh, specialization in general overall is probably a good thing. You know, if you are the uh, West Africa watcher uh, who, you know, is worried about U.S. security su support for um, forces that are then going into doing coups, or if you are uh, somebody who watches the Korean Peninsula, like there's uh a certain community within a community there that you can uh, situate yourself in and um, ultimately position yourself in and, and, and get to know those folks and get to learn more just by um, being somebody who consistently cares about that thing and knows a lot about it and is able to speak, you know, the separate sort of dictionary that comes with each specific issue set. Um, however, at the same time, I would advise that people be at least conversational in the great powers and, and U.S. foreign policy towards like, the great powers, uh, thinking you know, China especially, but to a lesser degree, Russia. Um, I think if, you know, those are a lot of the most powerful uh, actors in U.S. foreign policy and, and global affairs, and, you know, everybody kind of is almost asked to have a take on them and, and they will often um, touch on some of the same issues that you know you might be studying, um, whether it's uh, China's engagement in Latin America or it's uh, Russia's um, interventions and, and involvement in the Central Asian republics. Um, you know, they are um, you know, unique kind of challenges for US national security. Um, and if you can at least kind of have at least some sort of uh, understanding of their history, um, you know, their government, uh, what their foreign policy is, and, and um, you know, great power politics in general, I think is good to understand. Um, it'll really help you build ties with folks who follow this stuff and 
inform your own analysis, of course, as well. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the accessibility of people in this field. If you can, uh, you know, get coffee with somebody that you admire in this field, I was, you know, interested in doing things like that. If you're attending cool events um, about foreign policy and, and getting coffee with people who um, really know space or you admire, um, you're going to build relationships over time. You're going to build your own knowledge um, of the issue sets, but also how it interacts with the government. Um, and, you know, you're really going to, um, I think, separate yourself from, um, you know, somebody who doesn't necessarily do those things. Uh, finally, I guess not finally, I guess I have really two more points, but be a good writer, augment your writing skills. You know, there's a lot of writing in this field. And, you know, if you can be a good writer, uh, not just like an academic writing, but also in kind of the policy writing, the public consumption writing, and be very good at different types of writing, then you will separate yourself because people want to read good writing. Uh, they don't want to read bad writing. Um, and your analysis will stick more in people's heads. Uh, it'll go further and further up the chain of command in uh, college, uh, your papers, um, applications, and things like that. So if you can be a good writer, people will have a better sense of who you are, what you believe, and uh, they'll listen um, and, and hopefully be sympathetic. But um, certainly take you more seriously. Uh, finally, be a good person. Uh, that is the most important advice probably here at all. You know, so many people, um, you know, who have great skills and great resumes and things like that. But, you know, if you can't work on a team and work with people, um, you know, who might have different backgrounds or different areas of interest um, or things like that, um, you're going to be doing yourself a good service. So if you conduct yourself with integrity, uh, if you're open to learning um, and, you know, very, um, you know, have principles that you're passionate about um, and you're uh, generally kind to people, then that will be rewarded. That will be something that, um, that you know, you will feel better about, but also people will want to work with you, hear from you, uh, and otherwise support the work that you do. For sure, yeah, that's super important. I think I would say definitely the last point is true of, I would say probably any any job or any career, uh, but definitely are those are things to keep in mind. And there are so many opportunities, especially in terms of uh, what you were saying about writing. There's so many opportunities, I think, even throughout university and throughout college um, where you can engage with Absolutely. You can build credibility and build a brand for yourself. And then just one other thing. Um, sorry to interrupt. No, please go ahead. You know, if you're if you're interested in, you know, talking with me or somebody on our team about your career and, and you know what options might look like for you, whether you should go to grad school, get a PhD, et cetera. Uh, we have a team full of folks uh, at JQAS who are happy to meet with you and walk you through that. Uh, feel free to go onto our website. Uh, my email is on there. Um, and you can book a meeting with me, actually, or, you know, anybody else on our team if, if I'm not available. Awesome. Thank you. That's <laughs> great to hear. I have one last question. So I'm curious about, you know, if you you can put any shameless plugs as you would like to, <laughs> the time for All you. Right. Um, I'm curious about some of the upcoming projects or initiatives that JQAS is excited about and how, how can our listeners get involved or stay informed about your work? 
Absolutely. So uh, I mentioned at the outset a number of our great offerings and programs, uh, one of which is our reading groups. You know, the the general premise of the reading groups is, um, at least if you're in the United States, we will mail you a copy of the book. Uh, we'll, if you're not, we'll kind of work with you to see how that's possible. But we will mail you the book, um, and then we'll either send you a Zoom link if you register remotely, or uh, we will um, buy you dinner if you're in the DC area and, and you're coming to the in-person session. But it's a great opportunity to read some of the great literature on IR, um, on you know stuff preparing you for your career and, and you know professional development, but also to meet a lot of the great folks in our network across the country. Um, you know, I certainly wish I had taken greater advantage of this when I was in undergrad and in grad school. Um, you know, if not only for the three books, but the opportunity and the connections and the people to build it. Um, and it's we have a couple upcoming ones. Uh, one of them, there's two kind of contrasting ones about Henry Kissinger and his legacy after the, the passing of that uh, controversial and, and uh, singular statesman. Um, we have one on Greg Grandin's uh, Kissinger's Shadow, uh, which is a more critical take on Kissinger. And then uh, we have one, uh, A World Restored, which is a more perhaps sympathetic take on Kissinger. Uh, we've had those in the works. We also have uh, one's usually every month, uh, and we announce those on our website. You can sign up on the registration link on our website under uh, for students, uh, reading groups. We also have our own podcast, the Security Dilemma Podcast, uh, which I'm on occasionally, but not as much. It's usually my colleague, Patrick Fox, and, and our executive director, John Gay. But we interview uh, experts on U.S. foreign policy weekly um, about the topics that you all care about. We've had some really awesome talks. Our first guest was Stephen Wald of Harvard. Uh, we've had uh, Emma Ashford at the Stevenson Center. We've had uh, Van Jackson, the, the former Obama administration official, and now uh, dissident professor, as he calls himself, in New Zealand. Um, we've had some really amazing people speak on a, on a breadth of different topics, and um, it's usually a lot of fun to have a stake in and also um, have a stake in producing and also um, to listen to. So a uh, great way to keep up with us all the time, um, especially if you're not in DC. I also you know, will again mention the Marcellus Policy Fellowship. Our next cohort application cycle is live. Uh, it goes live through January 14th. That's the application deadline. Um, it's just on our website. And um, you know, if you have any questions about that, if you have any uh, you know, sample topic proposals you would like people to look over, feel free to send me a draft. It's uh, all for people who are interested in careers in U.S. foreign policy. There's no U.S. citizenship requirement, which might be relevant to this audience, yeah. um, but you'll really have the opportunity to dive into U.S. foreign policy, your topic of interest, and get to hear from some amazing uh, scholars and practitioners and um, be part of the great cohort as well. So, uh, those are some of our big initiatives um, that we have coming up down the pike. Uh, you can get in contact with me. Uh, you can follow me on X slash Twitter. The, yeah. uh, I am at AJ Menizzi. That's capital A, capital J, capital M if it matters. Um, and then my email is aj.menizzi, again, M-A-N-U-Z-Z-I, at jqas.org if you have any questions about society. Uh, you know, want to meet up for a Zoom call or something like that. Um, you can also follow our newsletter, 
uh, on our website, jqas.org. Our newsletter has uh, hand-picked job listings, fellowship opportunities, uh, career advice and resources, uh, as well as just kind of news and things that people in our network have been writing and talking about. And you can sign up for it under the resources tab on our website. Uh, finally, we're also uh, on social media as a society. We are JQA Society on uh, X slash Twitter and Instagram. Um, and you can follow the work that we're doing at the national office. Some of our chapters are doing throughout the country. Um, and otherwise, uh, become acquainted with the John Quincy Adams Society. So I certainly welcome anybody who uh, wants to engage with us and uh, we would love to have you in this fight. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was lovely to speak to you. And it's been I'll an make absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'll link everything that uh, you just said in the description so you can find it there. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.